condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. What I hope to show you tonight is that this passage is not only about bare theological truths, it's also about a way of thinking. It's about categories of thought. And the first thing you must see then is that the problem that the apostle is pointing his finger to is a problem that comes within a much larger argument about a solution. This passage is not, first of all, about the problem. It is about the solution. But in order to see the problem, the apostle is going to show us in these four verses just how deep the problem is. And then at the end of this sermon, we're going to come back to the solution that he shows. But for all, for now, all you need to know is this is not, first of all, about the solution. It is about the problem. Although in the passage, the solution is this big. Point number two. The problem is not what we might assume. If things really are worse than we expect, what is this problem? Read again in verse 12. He says, Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. And then he goes on to explain what that means. I simply want to point out to you, the Apostle Paul is making, not just for Christians, not for just for religious people, but for all people, he is saying there are two great universal truths in life. And he says the first great, great universal truth is this. All of us know and all of us have experienced at some point in life other people who have died. We also know that at some point we are going to die. And we understand that death is not the way it's supposed to be. No matter how much we shine up celebration of life ceremonies when someone dies, that person is still dead, and no matter how many nice stories we tell about that person, they're not coming back. You may remember Aunt Martha, you remember your, your mom, your dad, your cousin, whoever it is who died, but it is not better that they are dead. It isn't. And we feel that sting. It matters to us. I doubt there's a widow or a widower here who would say, I am glad my husband or my wife is no longer here. I understand that losing your spouse is one of the greatest pains this world has. Death is not great. We have recognized that for a long time. In fact, I want to give you three sort of interesting reflections on the reality of death from people who are not Christians, from the ancient Roman poet Seneca. He says, death is the wish of some, the relief of many, and the end of all. Every person dies. William Shakespeare, who helped refine most of the English language that we use or misuse, he says, all that live must die, passing through nature to eternity. And then, since I figured some of you would want a more contemporary philosopher, I'm going to give you a quote from Garrison Keillor. They say such nice things about people at their funerals, it makes me so sad that I'm going to miss mine by only a couple of days. It's kind of funny, but it's also true, isn't it? All those nice things people say about you do not take away the fact that when you die, you're dead. You're not coming back. As long as the world continues, you're gone. Which brings everyone here to this basic question. 
if there is this universal truth, everyone is going to die. And it's not good. It brings us to this question, why is there death? Why? And that is the second universal truth the apostle gives us in verse 12. He says, so death spread to all men because, do you see what it says? Because all sinned. There is the second great universal truth everyone has to struggle with. Not only do we die, that death is rooted in the deeper, or in the deeper reality that death has come because we are sinners. It is not just that death appeared on the scene. No, death is a result of something, and that is the result of sin. Now, I have to say to you, especially if you're not Christian or religious tonight, I would be amazed if you agreed with me on this point. I'm not asking you to agree with me at this point. I just want you to hear me out. There are three reasons that I would say to you why you should at least consider that the problem that lies behind death is what I am calling sin. The first thing I want you to consider is this. What do we mean by sin? What is the Bible defined by sin? Well, if you look in the Bible, the Bible says this, that death, or rather that sin is either failing to do what God says or doing what God says we should not. That pretty much covers everything. From words, thoughts, actions, either failing to do what we should or doing what we should not. Now, what you'll recognize in that definition is a referent point. That is, sin is not, first of all, something is wrong, the world is broken, they don't work the way they should. No, what Paul is arguing is that our basic problem is not here, it is not in our world, first of all, with one another, or even a problem that is one that I can solve. It is not just that I don't like what's going on. It is not just that it doesn't work correctly. No, the apostle would say that things are not the way they are supposed to be because each one of us and who we are collectively have a problem with God. Or our difficulty is with our creator. It's not, first of all, with creation or other creatures. It's with God. Then you might wonder, what difference does that make? Let me give you one very good example, I think, of why that makes such a big difference. You would imagine if the problem was only a human problem, a horizontal problem, it had nothing to do with the vertical, that is our relationship with our creator, over the many, many years of human existence, we would have gotten some things eventually right. Some moral things would be better. In fact, most moral things, why don't we just say we would have figured out the problems that work, that exist in life. I'm going to try out a couple on you. I'm a guest, so I want to be a little bit careful how much I ask. How many of you are married? It looks like many more than raised their hands. Some of you are a little either cautious of being married or cautious of raising your hands in church. Those of you who admit you're married, how is your marriage? Now, you don't have to say anything. Because even though marriages may go through very good times, they also go through some difficult times. Let me just say this. If your marriage is in a difficult spot, you're normal. <laughs> That's not a big surprise. Marriages have that. Why? Because there are two people in this relationship called marriage. 
You talk and the other one takes it away that you didn't intend, or you intended it in that way. You just didn't want to say it in a way that she would take it right. Or you're struggling over a decision. I want to do this. She wants to do that. And you come to loggerheads where the kids introduce more complication into the situation. You would think after years and years and generations of marriage, we would finally figure out this is how you live in a marriage productively and everything would be right. Wouldn't you think that would be a basic kind of moral issue that we should address and we would finally figure it out? But we haven't. Or since today, I'm not sure if you talked about that this morning, but today is in the United States the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, January 19th, 2020. Do you realize in Kent County, in 2017, the last year for which there are stats, there were 1,247 children who were aborted. That is the number of students in the elementary grades. I live in Ada in all of Aiden public and Christian schools. There were 57,000 children whose lives were taken from them in 2017 in the state of Michigan. That's more than Ada and Lowell, the two closest cities to me. It's more than their combined population. There are two cities that do not exist every year because of that. Now let me ask you what you think the difficulty with abortion is. Is it a choice problem? Is it an is it a, a imposition of the will of one creature versus another, a mom versus a dad, a mother versus a child? What really is the problem? Let me suggest to you that in this difficulty, the problem is not first of all between human beings, it is a problem with God. It is a difficulty with us grappling with and appreciating the circumstances that our Creator has put into our lives. It's not merely a horizontal problem. It is a vertical problem. And even though we say to ourselves, if we would only finally do things right and get what we want, and I could be in control, everything would be right, what do we learn from human existence? But we have been trying that for years and years and years and generations, and it's not making much of a difference. It's not changing. The second thing I want you to think about in terms of sin as the real problem is that we believe because of our sense that sin is only horizontal that if we could finally be in control and have things our way, our problems would be eventually solved. I'm a little bit of a politics nut. I love watching debates. You can look at me, you can boo, I don't care, I still enjoy it. And I enjoy it primarily because I get to see what sound bites their handlers thought they should say on national television. I'm not so foolish as to think that really represents everything they think, only that little piece is what they thought would sell well. You know what really sells well, evidently, if you watch debates? I don't care whether it's Republican or Democrat or a third party. You know what they say? If we only had more money to throw at the problem, things would be right. You all might look at me and say, boo, that's never going to work. Let me ask you, in your life, do you think that? Do you look at your own life and think, if only I had more money to throw at that problem, everything would be better? 
It's not just a political problem. It's not an American problem. It's a heart problem. And it's rooted in this sense. I need the resources for me to solve my own problems. Let me tell you, having spent many years in prison ministry, where prisoners are given loads of resources, all kinds of counseling, even simple things like personal hygiene classes, better fathering classes. You need a degree in something, you can enroll. The assumption is if we put more resources to the problem, if we give people what they need in order to succeed, they will overcome the difficulty. Most prisoners, if you've been in prison, you recognize this is a problem. And I think you'll agree with me, will you not? That most prisoners can spot the fallacy in this argument because many of them had resources before they went to prison. It's not a lack of resources. Often there is a problem that is deeper and more difficult. It's not a resource problem. In fact, I'm telling you tonight, it's a heart problem. It's a sin problem, which leads me to the third thing I want to say about this, that it's not just here, it's a problem with our Creator. And it's this, that Paul argues not only that human beings have sinned, but that we sin because we're sinners. The dramatic pauses between my words were meant to communicate to you this is really the heart of Paul's argument. For those of you who are interested in theology, you know this passage, Romans 5 verse 12, is one of the baseline, one of the basic, the bedrock passages that we cite when we talk about the federal headship of Adam. What it means is that Adam was appointed by God to represent us as a human race. So that when Adam fell, he rebelled against God, we all fell with him. And it's not simply because Adam was our forefather and we all came from him physically. No, he was appointed as our representative. Because he sinned, we are counted guilty and our nature is corrupt. Let me say that one more time. Paul is arguing because Paul was a, because uh, Adam was a representative. When Adam fell, all of us were counted guilty. Now let that sink in for a moment. That means that you're considered guilty before God, not simply for the sins you've committed, but you're guilty because of who you are by nature. Think through that for a moment. You're guilty not simply because you sin, but because you're a sinner. How does that strike you? If you're anything like me, it's immediately when you hear that you say, but if God had appointed a better, a better representative for me, I wouldn't be in this position. Secretly, I even think to myself, if God had appointed Jeff D. Moore to be Adam, we wouldn't be in this mess. You can laugh about that because we certainly would be. The fact that God appointed a representative for us in Adam that fell means not only is our problem with God, we lack the resources in order to address our problem with God, but here's the thing, even if you could undo every wrong that you have ever done in the history of your life, you would still stand before God as a guilty, condemned sinner. 
There is no way you can even take away all your sin, let alone address the sinful character of your heart. That's why when I read this passage, I emphasized to you the parallel that Paul says exists between Adam and the second Adam because he wants us to see this very clearly. And this is tonight's message. The problem is far worse than you maybe came through these doors imagining it would be. It's not just with your circumstances. It's not just with a few things in your life. It's not because you lack resources. It's not because some unfortunate events have shaped you the way you are. No, our primary problem in life as a human race is between us and God, and we stand before God tonight as condemned sinners for our own sin, but also because we stand in the line of Adam himself. Now, having said all of that, there are two things that Paul does that I want to do with you. And the argument as it unfolds, he follows that, that statement, because all sinned, represented in Adam, because all experienced death, all sinned, is represented in Adam. He does two things, and I want to do those two things with you. First, he gives us proof. Because he understood when you heard that, you would say with me, that's not fair. He says we need to go back in Bible history and see that this is actually true. Look at verses 13 and 14. He says, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Crazy scenario in your mind. Imagine that I'm headed down 131 tonight on the way to lovely this lovely OPC church. And because I'm a little nervous and I'm not sure if I'm going to get there on time, I'm going down 131 at 80 miles an hour. Imagine I get pulled over by one of Kent County's finest deputies. And he comes up to my window and he says, Do you realize how fast you were going? I say to him, of course I do. I was going 80 miles an hour. I was afraid Dale was going to get mad at me if I didn't show up on time. Now, having heard that exchange, what would the officer do? You might say, well, he's going to write you a ticket. 80 is a lot more than 55. You deserve a ticket. Dale doesn't really count at Kent County Sheriff's Department. And so you're going to get a ticket. Do you notice that your presumption in giving that answer is that there is a law that says you can only drive 55 miles an hour on 131? If there is no law, there is no transgression of the law. And Paul says here, the kind of transgression we're talking about here is an overt offense of a law. But the overt offense of the law is not possible until the law was given. He says the law was given at Mount Sinai. Don't you remember Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5? There God summarizes the law for his people. And for these listeners, these Romans, many of whom were Jews, he argues this to them. If the law didn't come until Moses, how is it possible for there to be transgression, sin, that led to death before the law was given? That's not fair, is it? One more example. Let's imagine that you and your wife go out for dinner and you're out way past when you expected 
at home are your young teenage children. And when you come home, it's maybe midnight or so, and you walk in and you say to your 13-year-old daughter, why aren't you in bed already? Well, the only reason that she ought to be in bed is if you have some prior agreement that there is a bedtime. Otherwise, as a father saying to your daughter, you ought to have this, done this or that, makes no sense, does it? Again, Paul is making that argument that if we wonder to ourselves how in the world could sin be that bad that it goes to the very core of who we are, that we are counted guilty not simply because of what we do, but because of who we are, Paul says, take this as an example. Before the law was given, the transgression, according to the type of Adam, the, address, the direct transgressing of the law of God could not have happened, and yet people still died. What does that mean? He says it means this. It means that death and the sin that underlies it is not simply because of what we do. It is because of who we are. That means things are far worse than you imagine, my friend. Even if you commit yourself to all day tomorrow being the very best person you've ever been, and you can end your day saying, I've done very little wrong today, you've still done wrong, and you still are counted guilty in Adam. You are still an offense to the holy creator God. Things really are that bad. Which brings me tonight to the last thing I need to tell you. And that is that there is a solution to the problem. There is a solution to the problem. If you continue reading in verse 15, it says, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Remember how I said a little while ago that the point of this passage was not simply to give you truth, individual nuggets of things for you to believe, the point of the sermon was to show you categories that affect assumptions. Here is the category that is necessary as a basic truth for following Jesus. You need to see that you are represented not only in Adam, but as Paul says in the rest of these verses, including verse 15, you were also represented in Jesus. It's not only that things are far worse than you can imagine, it's also that your Savior is far greater. It's not just that you cannot undo what Adam did. There is a Savior who has. And in Jesus Christ, not only are your sins addressed, the ones that you commit, also your character and your heart, who you are as a human being is addressed. So that not only are the sins, the unkind words and the nasty thoughts and the lustful things, all of that taken away by the death of Jesus, you are also fundamentally in your character addressed. So that your heart as well as your actions show a representation by Jesus Christ. I hope you can see that makes Jesus Christ infinitely important. There's, I'll be honest with you, you can look through every single world religion that exists. If you're here tonight and you say, oh, nice Christian people, 
They really love each other. But how do I know this is really the truth? Let me lay this out before you. Look at Islam. Buddhism, Shintoism, Hinduism, Taoism, count the religions of the world, look at them all, and ask them this question. Is there someone in that religion who comes in my place not only to undo my sin, but also to undo the problem with the human race? Is there a Savior that great in that religion? And I will tell you, no matter what religion you look at, you will find no Savior like Jesus. There's none. Which leads you to this basic conclusion, as it does to me. You may have been in these chairs many years. Maybe you were raised here. Maybe there's even an indentation in your chair where your little cheekies always fit. That doesn't save you. It may make you a better educated pagan, but it doesn't save you. One of my favorite quotes is, sitting in church doesn't make you a Christian any more than sitting in your garage makes you a car. <laughs> doesn't mean it's not helpful, but there are a lot of people who sit in churches every Sunday who never come to a conclusion that Jesus is that great, and because he is that great, I by necessity must follow him. They look at Jesus as a nice choice to make in life. Someone, if it fits for you, go ahead and follow him. I'm telling you tonight that's not the gospel truth. If the problem really is as bad as Paul describes it, there is only one Savior, and that Savior is Jesus Christ. Friends, I am convinced by the word of God that Jesus Christ is the only Savior. And no matter what you came here tonight expecting you were going to hear or expecting who you were going to hear, let the truth of this word not only resonate in your ears tonight, but may it resonate in your heart that you may see that just as sin entered this world by one man and death through sin so all died, so all the free grace and the gift of that free grace has come by one man, Jesus Christ. And it is in him alone that you and me will find peace. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful tonight for the power of your word. We often think of your word as communicating truth, and it certainly does. But we very seldomly wrestle with the utter necessity of Jesus. He seems to us only to be our religious choice. Help us to see tonight that is not the case. That because of the depth of our despair, we need Jesus Christ. I pray especially for those who are here tonight who wrestle with believing that to be true. Maybe they're new here or maybe they've been here a long time. Lord, open our hearts to see what your word teaches us tonight. We ask you this. We beg this of you. In Jesus' name, amen. We have a wonderful song to sing in response one of my favorite songs, Before the Throne of God Above. Would you stand, please, and sing with me?